Open your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Today we're going to study verses 1 to 21. The Gospel of Mark chapter 8 will begin at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a long way, from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that they, 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 these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we, like the disciples, we need to be taught by you. We thank you for your word. Help us to study your word. But in studying it, that our eyes would be open, that our ears would be unstopped, that we would perceive that Jesus is Lord, that your Son is the Savior of the world. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, reports the second mass feeding performed by Jesus in the space of three chapters in Mark's gospel. And the similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 And here the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8 have led liberal scholars to assume that there is the double reporting of a single event. It seems impossible to them that this kind of extraordinary thing could have happened twice. 
Now, it's true that there's a lot in similarity between these narratives. On both occasions, we're told there's a large crowd. Jesus sees them. He has compassion on them. Both times, he appeals to the disciples to do something. In both cases, the disciples profess unbelief. They have no idea how people like that and that number could be could be fed. On both occasions, Jesus asks them for what they have. They give it to Jesus, bread and fish, and he supernaturally multiplies them. And on both cases, both events, there's a great deal of food left over. At the end, you see that the events are, in fact, very similar. But there's also a lot of differences between them. The number of people who are fed is different. In Mark chapter 6, it was 5,000 men with an emphasis on men, leading us to believe it was actually maybe 15,000 people, maybe 20. Here it's 4,000 persons. So it's it's probably a significantly smaller crowd, though still quite large. Uh, The number of loaves that is gathered, the, the amounts given to Jesus at the beginning, the amount that's left over is different. Actually, Mark uses different vocabulary, so he's not cutting and pasting. For instance, the word for fish is different between the accounts. Here, by the way, it probably should be translated maybe sardines. They're really little fish that he's been given here. So he's not just, as it were, in an ancient way, cutting and pasting an account. And very significantly, the recipients of the two feedings are very different. The first feeding took place in Jewish Galilee, whereas the feeding of the 4,000 involved a mixed Jew-Gentile audience in the Gentile lands of the Decapolis. Now, moreover, Jesus himself in verses 19 and 20 plainly treats these as separate and distinct events. He compares the number of people between them, the amounts left over, and urges his disciples to think about it. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6, again, that was in Jewish land, and that had a different theme. There the theme was Jesus as the Messiah. It was in so many ways. We studied it then, a reenacting of the Passover. There's the new Israel as he gathers them and he feeds them. Now, here in chapter 8, however, the feeding of the 4,000, again, it takes place in the Gentile lands. This is at the end of Jesus' eight-month-long, I think that's about right, his sojourn through the Gentile lands. And Mark is viewing Jesus as fulfilling the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah of the blessing of God coming on the spiritually barren lands of the Gentiles. Isaiah 36, the spiritually barren land shall be made glad as the glory of the Lord is seen in Lebanon. And so thematically, the second feeding shows this, that Jesus is able to meet all the needs of all people. But then in the aftermath, we have two more points that are made. We're going to see that Jesus rejects rejects the cynical unbelief of the Pharisees. And then we're going to see his patient nurture of his own disciples' imperceptive faith. Those will be our three points. Well, first, Jesus provides all that people need. Mark's transitional phrase in verse 1, in those days, links the feeding of the 4,000 with the events that preceded in chapter 8. It gives a location as taking place in the Gentile lands, the Decapolis, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from Jewish Galilee. Now, after John the Baptist's murder, you remember that Jesus withdrew his disciples and the the controversy with the Pharisees was getting very hot. Jesus wanted to create a little space. 
And so he takes his disciples out of the Jewish lands and he travels through Gentile lands. He goes as far as Tyre. That's where he meets the Syrophoenician woman and he casts the demon out from her daughter. He actually goes north to Sidon, pretty far north there. And then he makes his way with his disciples back through Gentile lands until they come to the Decapolis, the ten cities of the Gentiles in the Gentile regions of Galilee. And there, we saw it in in, in the uh, last chapter, he sees a man who's brought to a man who's deaf and, and, and mute. And he compassionately heals the man. Now, word of Jesus' presence therefore spread. And once again, verse 1, he has a large crowd following him. Now, when Jesus, back in chapter 6, he, when he fed the 5,000, we're told that he looked upon them as sheep without shepherds. You see, it was Israel. And he, looked, he was looking at the, promised, the, the covenant people, and they didn't have shepherds, and so we're told he taught them. They were, they were shepherdless, so he shepherded them with the teaching of his word. Here, however, we're told it's the physical needs of the crowd that attracts his attention. They'd been with him for three days. Their food had run out. And Jesus comments on this situation to his disciples. Look at verse 3. If I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, especially since some of them have come from far away. Now, isn't it interesting that so many people have thronged around Jesus, even to the point that they forgot about their provisions. It shows us what a compelling and dynamic personality our Savior really was. Only someone like him could gather these crowds. We need to remember this. The magnetic personality, not in a worldly sense, in a divine sense of Jesus the Messiah, and he gathers people to himself. Now, once again, he shows his mercy. The previous account, the previous feeding, was because he had compassion on them. So it is here. Look at verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd. And when we read the Gospels, we naturally come to the conclusion that Jesus is concerned for our spiritual needs, and that is absolutely true. But we see here that he also cares for our physical needs. Jesus' compassion extends to the wholeness of the whole person. And so issues like hunger or loneliness or discouragement, the need for a good job and ample pay, these things are not beneath the concern of our Lord and Savior. I often think of Matthew 25. That's one of the places where Jesus, he foretells the final judgment and he tells us what he's going to say when the righteous are brought before them and he praises them for their deeds. We, we're justified through faith alone, but, but there are deeds to praise. And it's interesting to note what kinds of deeds Jesus takes notice of. He says this, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous ask him, this, this actually, actually hasn't happened yet. And, and we will we'll actually witness this in person. And the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we ever do these things for you? And he will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Matthew 25, 35 and 40. Now, my point is that Jesus has compassion for practical human needs. These things are really important to him. It matters to him how we treat people. The the mercy, the kindness, the compassion we show is something that he models, and we are to imitate him in it. Now, our great encouragement in showing mercy, and by the way, it's not merely compassion for family and friends. Even the wicked do that. 
But for strangers, this, these people are strangers to Jesus. Even to enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. And so where do we get that compassion? We get it from our knowledge of Jesus' mercy for us. And I want to tell you that the heart of our Lord has not changed from the days when he walked the fields of, of Galilee and the Decapolis. And Jesus is now in heaven and he has that same compassion for his people in need. The Savior who had mercy on the hungry crowds in the wilderness, he will have compassion on his people today. The Lord who, who noticed it, we, we don't tend to notice people. Why don't we know what's going on? We don't pay attention to it. He does pay attention to it. He noticed their situation. He notices your situations. And he is the almighty Lord who had the power to miraculously feed the crowd. He is able to meet your needs as well. Now, as in the previous feeding, Jesus pointed all this out to his disciples. He pointed out their hunger, and as before, their response revealed a want of spiritual maturity, shall we say. And they answered Jesus, look at verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, it's interesting to me that many commentators want to defend them, and I think there's something to it. One commentator says, you know, Jesus is not a vendor of miracles. You don't just press a button and out comes a miracle, and they, they, they were treating him with respect. That may be true, except for the word how. That's, that's the problem. How could it ever happen? Well, the answer is Jesus. Uh, the dull-witted answer they give to Jesus emphasizes And by the way, this is an emphasis we're seeing in Mark. Mark's transitioning to the portion of his gospel that more and more is about the training of the disciples. And David Garland says this betrays the arrested development of the disciples in terms of their growth in faith. That is true. Well, Mark relates the miraculous feeding in straightforward language. He tells us fairly briefly what happens, and it's pretty much the same as before. Jesus asked for what provisions they have they bring some bread to him a small amount they bring little fishes and he blesses the food by the way his blessing of the food here uh in in other passages we're told he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays we can assume that's true but here we're told he blessed it's actually a biblical precedent for christians saying grace people say why do we say a blessing before meals following the example of jesus a meal's an ideal time to remember god's whole provision in life we should give thanks to him for our daily bread and jesus does that and and then he distributes it to the people he has the disciples take the have the people sit down he he had, i presume they had baskets we're told they had baskets a loaf is put in a basket they go forth and it just doesn't run out they reach in they take out a loaf they reach back in there's another loaf and so on they did until four thousand people are fed with the seven loaves that they had then the same sort of thing happens with the fish And of course, all of this is a revelation of Jesus as a sovereign Lord from heaven who has power to meet our needs. Jesus meets all the needs of his people. J.C. Ryle is right when he says, in him there is a boundless store of mercy and grace ready to be bestowed on those who ask him in prayer. It is absolutely true that you cannot outpray the resources of God. He will answer according to his goodness, but he is able to meet all the needs of his people. And we see this in what is said in verse 8. Notice that Mark says they all ate and were satisfied. And so the people who were found famished were sent home full. 
A few loaves, a few fish had been placed into Jesus' hand. By the way, as I mentioned in the previous feeding, that's what we do in ministry. We take the little we have, the little resources we have, the little talents we have, and we put it in Jesus' hands. We offer it in service to him. We, we ask his blessing, and he will do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. That's exactly what happened here. He fed them all. and At the end, they took up broken pieces that were left over, and it was seven baskets full. And, and I think of the superlatives that in the Gospels and elsewhere in the Bible we see spoken of Jesus in the previous passage. And, and uh, we we're told that he has done everything well. Remember that when he, he opened the ears of the deaf man? They said, he has done everything well. Well, here he goes again. He doesn't just do it. He does it well. He doesn't just feed them. He satisfies them. They're, they're not just left without want. They're, they're given a fullness. He did this. He does everything well. I think of Genesis 18, verse 14, one of the many places where these words are used in the Bible, the angels talking about opening the womb of barren Sarah. And he asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? We should ask that about Jesus. And the answer is no. If you can do this, you can do anything. There is nothing that is too hard for Jesus Christ. You see, this reveals his identity as the Son of God. He is the all-sufficient Savior to meet the needs of those who trust in him. Now we should notice before we move on that this is again a Gentile audience for whom Jesus does this. Jesus is bringing God's saving bread not only to the covenant people, to Israel, to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so this miracle shows the widespread of God's redemptive concern in Jesus Christ. It's for all the world. Sinclair Ferguson asserts that in this way, Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 foreshadows the gathering together of those from every nation under heaven to the heavenly feeding of God's people. After all, these are people who had previously, the Gentiles, they'd paid no attention to God. In their ignorance, they were idol worshipers. They were undoubtedly immoral people. But Jesus brings God's saving bread. And my friends, this is a message for us in our attitude to the world. The saving power that Jesus displays in the Decapolis reminds us that, yes, even the enemies of the church, as one one writer puts it this way, even the enemies of the church are neither forsaken by God nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. That is true. As you and I look, Jesus went outside of Israel. We look outside the church. And what do we see? Do we see culture war enemies? Is our goal to dominate them by other means? No, we're, we're to see above all else. There are other things we may see, but we're to see sinners. And somebody needs to tell them about Jesus. It's what we were. It's what I was. And someone witnessed to me. Someone invited me to church. They are not beyond the redemptive mercy of Jesus Christ. The burden for their salvation must be on our hearts. After all, when Jesus, at the end of the gospel story, he gives the mission to the church on what does it center? The missionary outreach of of the gospel through his people for the salvation of the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the mission that Jesus gave us. It reflects his redemptive concern for the world. And Jesus meets all of our needs. 
But secondly, he then rejects the cynical unbelief of unbelievers. Having finished his ministry in the Decapolis, Jesus sent the crowds back to their homes. Then, verse 10, he got into the boat with his disciples. He went to the district of Dalmanusha. We actually, we actually haven't figured out yet where Dalmanusha is. There's all these theories. I think Magdala, which is a fishing town on the western side near Gennesaret, is probably the most likely candidate. It doesn't really matter, but we really don't know exactly where that is. And he, but he was coming home to the Jewish side of the lake, and sadly, home was never a welcome place for a prophet of the Lord. And Jesus found an unwelcome reception waiting for him in the Jewish lands. How sad that is. Now, again, one reason we suspect why Jesus had taken his disciples for so long outside of the Jewish lands. It's like an eight-month journey to go up to Tyre and up to Sidon to come back all the way over to Decapolis. It's a lot of his ministry. is spent training the disciples, but he's also, he's got a timetable. He's got a sequence of events. Jesus is the master of his, of his circumstances, and the time for the cross has not yet happened. But we know what the Pharisees were doing during this eight months. They were, they were sharpening their swords, weren't they? They just couldn't wait for the day when a boat showed up. And, ah, oh, Jesus got out, and, and we know exactly what we're going to say to him. And, and sure enough, we're told that he, they argued with him as soon as he got there. And they had decided on their recent strategy to oppose Jesus. Look at verse 11. Mark relates that they demanded from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, a question is raised, what do they mean by a sign? The Greek word is samion, and in the Gospel of John, that means miracle. Uh, John's Gospel is two parts, the book of signs, then the book of the passion. The the miracles by which he shows who he is, and then the, the cross and its events. But not in Mark's Gospel. Mark does not use the word sign for miracles. He uses the word dunamis, a mighty deed, or just a miracle is that word. And so something other than, than just a desire for Jesus to perform a miracle is in view. They'd seen, they knew he did miracles. They, they'd already seen those. Now what they mean is seen by this language that he would do a sign from heaven. And so what they want is not for Jesus to perform a miracle, but for him to manufacture something that God would do in their presence that would validate his ministry. By the way, God had already done that in his baptism, hadn't he? When the heavens were open and God spoke. And we'll see that to his own disciples, the Mount of Transfiguration is coming. But for these unbelieving enemies of Jesus demand that such a, a, a sign be given to them. And what they were looking for was the kind of thing that you read about, say, in the life of Moses. In Numbers 16, you have a rebellion against Moses and his authority. It's the rebellion of Korah and Dathan, and they don't like what Moses is doing. They've got a gang of ruffians, and they're going to stone Moses. And God appears. Suddenly, the Shekinah glory cloud fills the tabernacle. You see, God enters the picture, and he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm validating Moses. They want something like that. By the way, they're forgetting. And I wouldn't be surprised if that actual episode, they wanted something like that. What they're forgetting is that the other thing happened was that God caused the earth to open and swallow the rebels. And that was their role in this affair. But they wanted that kind of validation, objective, supernatural validation, not done by Jesus, but done for Jesus by heaven. 
Now, if their motives were not clear enough, Mark tells us very clearly in verse 11 that all this was to test Jesus. That word for test, pyrazo, also means to try. It, it, it means temptation. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the same word is used, and that connection's intentional. This is the work of Satan that they're doing. It, it doesn't refer this testing of him. This is not honest inquiry. They're not looking for sufficient information so they can make a decision about Jesus. No, no, they want, it's a hard-hearted attempt to erect a barrier an excuse for ongoing unbelief. I think James Edwards is helpful. He compares a Pharisee here to a man who's trying to decide if he trusts his wife. And so in order to decide if he trusts his wife, he hires a private investigator to follow her around and prove that she's not being unfaithful to him. And when it comes to the question, does he trust her, that question was answered when he hired the private investigator. The mere method reveals that there is no faith, and so it is for them. The mere insistence on this visible sign that God will arrange shows that they don't trust him. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. Trust is of the essence of our faith, and and this request for a sign only thinly veils a cynical, hard-hearted doubt that rejected Jesus. Well, Jesus responds very negatively. Look at verse 12. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. That's actually a lot tamer than what you get in the Greek. There's a Greek grammatical construction that's not easy to reproduce in English. But we would put it this way. It's almost an oath that Jesus is giving. May I die if I ever give this generation a sign. It's probably a more accurate rending of that. It's a, it's a, it's this, why does this generation always ask for a sign? He says, I'd rather die than give it to them. Something like that is what Jesus actually says. And it's preceded, verse 12, by a sigh of frustration. He sighed deeply in his spirit. And remember, he sighed in the previous encounter, the, the man who's, been, who's deaf and mute. And it's the mercy of Jesus. It's the sorrow of Jesus for the suffering brought about by the fall and sin. But now it's, it's the frustrated sigh regarding unbelief, hard-hearted unbelief. These are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the men who've taken up the shepherd's staff to lead the people, and they are the ones who are promoting unbelief. It was frustrating. It was a grief to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I am sure if he mourned over unbelief then, Jesus grieves unbelief today. You think of him at the end, again, he was in Jerusalem. He, he laments, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, that you weren't so hard-hearted. I, I came to save you. And Jesus has that same grief for, uh, think of covenant children who should walk away from the faith. What a burden that is to the heart of the Lord. You think of people who hear the gospel The gospel is preached to them with prayers, and they will not open their hearts. Well, Christians, too, we should grieve the hardness of hearts that rejects Jesus Christ and ruins countless souls. Well, why did Jesus refuse to give a sign if that's what they wanted to persuade them? I can think of two answers. One is that it would not have worked. 
And that's not just an opinion. It would not have worked. There was no sign that was going to bring these people to faith. They'd already seen overwhelming evidence of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd seen his, they'd been present for his teaching in person, the Son of God. They'd seen his miracles. No sign like this is going to have any other result given the hardness and the cynicism of their hearts. They would just attack it like they had done Jesus' teaching and miracles. Ferguson comments, the whole life of Jesus and his ministry signified who he was. No sign would ever convince these hard-hearted men, and therefore no sign would be given. That's right. Now, moreover, we need to understand that Jesus' miracles were not meant as displays to persuade the unwilling. Rather, they were manifestations of God's mercy for needy and suffering people. Donald English comments, the miracles of Jesus were not offered as signs to convince spectators. They were done as acts of love to people in need. Now, Jesus ascribes the Pharisees as this generation. That's his assessment of their heart. And you're going, I've heard that expression. You hear it in the Gospels. And usually there's an adjective to it. In chapter, in verse 38 of our own chapter, Jesus calls them an adulterous and sinful generation. In chapter 9, it's a faithless generation. And the same phrase comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the time of Moses. The generation of rebels who rejected Moses was this evil generation. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it in Psalm 95. And so here's the irony. These Pharisees who make themselves out to be the defenders of Moses' law By their cynical distrust in Jesus, they are in the very shoes of the rebels who opposed Moses and were judged. Now here's a question. Does that mean that God is not going to give us proofs? We're supposed to believe without proofs. Is faith really a leap in the dark? No, faith is not a leap in the dark. But here's the proof. Here's the sign has given us. What is the sign that has come from heaven to persuade us of of Jesus? That sign is the word of God. So this is my word that goes forth from my mouth, God says. The word of God is the testimony given to us by which we are to believe and be saved. God does not offer us some manifestation to overwhelm us. No, no. He brings his prophetic and apostolic word with its fulfillment of prophecy, with its spirit-wrought presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, the word of God, is the proof that leads us to saving faith. Do not ask God to give you a sign from heaven. Open your Bible. And I mean that charitably. Many times I've had the experience, you probably had the experience, someone comes and says, I, I, I need to know. And we give them the Gospel of John. We give them a Bible. I, I think I told recently in a sermon, so I'll do it again. A church member who had a brother who's a truck, race, truck driver, and he was about to do another cross-country haul. And I had five minutes to evangelize him. And I, he shows up in my office, I give him a Bible. And I said, uh, uh, if you really want to know, open this. And yes, I said, start with the Gospel of John. And two, and he, but he was not hard-hearted. He was earnest. And that sign is what saves. Two weeks later, I get a call from my church member saying, my brother's been saved because he read his Bible. My friends, the word is near to you. God from heaven has sent his inspired, inerrant word. It bears testimony to Jesus Christ. Take and read 
believe in the word of God. Well, Jesus refused to give the kind of sign they wanted, a spectacular display from heaven. What he did, very ominously, is he got into the boat, he left them, and he went to the other side, verse 13. And dare I say, this parting has ominous tones, because this is the last meeting between Jesus and the Pharisees in Galilee, where the Galilean ministry is coming to a conclusion in the transfiguration. We have the great confession coming up, then the transfiguration, then it's on to Jerusalem. And we think of how Jesus earlier, when he sent out the 72 evangelists, he said, if they refuse your message, what should they do? They should, they should knock off the dust from their feet. It was a way of showing that they had rejected God and were cursed. And Jesus doesn't perform that action, but we get the same idea of finality. Jesus had presented his gospel. There were obvious proofs in his person and work, and they denied him. And just as it was in their case, so it is today that the time comes when those who refuse to believe the gospel has been proclaimed, it's been witnessed, it's been explained, the questions have been answered, but now there is a willful rejection against him. In so many cases, there is not a future, a further opportunity to repent, believe, and be saved. My friends, if you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you hear that the Son of God was incarnate and then he bore the sins of those who believe on the cross to be forgiven, feel free to ask questions. But if you look at Jesus and you see what is offered you and you turned away, you may never receive another chance to escape the judgment your sins deserve. Jesus gets back into the boat he leaves them. He goes across the gate, the lake, and with him goes the gospel opportunity to be saved. My friends, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to believe. The next time that we read of Jesus encountering the Pharisees, their pride-driven skepticism will have hardened into the malice that nails him to the cross. Well, we get the impression that Jesus and his disciples left hurriedly because as they set off, the disciples realized they didn't have enough food with them. And this brings us to our third point. We've seen that Jesus provides for all the needs of people. We see that though he rejects the cynical, hard-hearted belief of people like the Pharisees. But then we witness him patiently nurturing the faith of his disciples. Verse 14, now they'd forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, Jesus observes this situation, and he takes the opportunity, as he often does, to make instruction. Verse 15, Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, we're back to bread. We've had this whole thing has been in the context of bread, going back to the beginning of the chapter. And now they've left the Pharisees, and they've got bread on their minds. And so Jesus wants to make some spiritual benefit of this circumstance. And he warns them against a kind of leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what's leaven? Well, what causes bread to rise is yeast. And the convenient way, many of you women are masters of this. 
some of the men too, I suppose you probably have family, you know, leavens that you've passed down from generation. And what happens is you keep a little bit of the dough with the, with the yeast in it and you, and you bake your bread, but you have that little bit and you put it in the next batch and the next batch. And that little bit of leaven with its yeast permeates the whole, the whole loaf. That is the message. That's the idea of leaven. And what Jesus is talking then is about is how ideas and attitudes can pass from one person to the next, one group to the next. Because of their power, they, they permeate the whole person, our attitude. And Jesus says, don't, let the ad, don't pick up the attitude of the Pharisees or of Herod. You see, it will influence you in unbelief. Now, if we ask, what is exactly does he mean with the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Well, it's helpful that the two of the other Gospels record the same event. In Matthew's version, it's the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their, their, their self-righteousness, their false legalistic teaching. In Luke 12, verse 2, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy, he says. Now, their, their teaching was hypocritical. In Mark's version, Jesus speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and then unusually the leaven of Herod. And you're going, there's not a lot in common between the Pharisees and Herod. They're legalists. He's a licentious person. What do they have in common? What they have in common is a hard-hearted unbelief towards Jesus despite the abundance of evidence before them. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's related to the false teaching. It certainly is hypocritical, but its substance is the attitude of hardened unbelief of the Pharisees and Herod. Now again, this metaphor of leaven turns on how a little bit of yeast impregnates the whole material with which it's mixed. And so Jesus is warning the disciples, don't let even a little bit of their attitude get into you. Their unbelieving disposition, it'll lead to cynicism in general and the rejection of Jesus in particular. Now, we might indeed apply the same principle today to, yeah, certainly false teaching and the skeptical cynicism. It's a sad thing. You have a, it happens all the time, I'm sorry to say. There's a Christian college and they want to teach the Bible, but the leaven of the unbelieving scholarly world comes in and they start accommodating and adapting some of their views and, and, and it begins permeating the whole and the whole can be lost. That is sadly common in our time. If you, your child goes off to college and he and she is not properly prepared with Bible teaching, we do this as a church, and the prayerful discipleship, and they go to some classroom, and some professor says, you know, there's errors in the Bible, and they, they breed this skepticism, begins to change our attitudes about the Bible, that leaven will affect everything in our lives. If it causes us to doubt the Word of God, beware. The leaven of unbelief, of cynicism, of skepticism towards God and his word, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be on ceaseless guard, yes, against the false self-righteousness of the Pharisees, yes, against the love of the world that we see in Herod. We must beware these leavens. We must lay hold of the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. We hold him in saving faith. And the passage concludes with Jesus laboring to this end. We see yet again the dull perception of the disciples. Jesus makes this comment. It's almost like they didn't hear him. 
Here's how they respond. Jesus makes this statement, beware. I mean, they just left the Pharisees. They might be able to see them, and they, they, they really, he knows what they're thinking as they're all looking at that one piece of bread. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and, the tax, and, and, the, and of Herod, and, and, and verse 16. So they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Well done, boys. Uh, and we look upon their spiritual imperception, and it should make us humble. Because what we see in them is so often seen in us. We need to be patient with our Christian children, with new believers. Thank the Lord that he is patient with us. I think a good way to understand these final verses is, comes from R. Kent Hughes. He, he tells a story of a man who went to the bank and he came to the teller and he says, I've got a check I'd like to, to cash. And the teller says to the man, well, you cannot cash the check until you sign it. Well, the man takes the huff and he goes to another bank. He goes to the teller. He says, I want to cash the check. And the teller says in the second bank, well, I cannot cash the check until you sign it. Well, he leaves. He goes to a third bank. I've got a check. I'd like to, to cash it. The teller says, you cannot, I cannot cash your check until you sign it. But, but this third teller does something different. After saying that, he grabs the man's head and bangs it against the counter three times. At which point the man takes out his pen, signs the check, and cashes it. So he goes back to the first bank, and he says, I had my check cashed. And they said, how did that happen? He said, well, somebody finally gave me a clear explanation. And that is the kind of thing, I think that is, in fact, a helpful analogy to what we see of Jesus in the final verses. He asks them, he's going to bang the disciples' head, as it were, metaphorically, on the counter of his boat. Look at verses 17 and 18. He asks them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Then he says, do you not perceive or understand? Then he says, are your hearts hardened? Going onward, he says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Now, I think that last question is particularly penetrating. Because on the one hand, they possessed everything they needed to believe in him except the spiritual power to use them properly. And when he talks about ears and eyes, let's not forget the passage before this involves Jesus healing a deaf man, giving him ears to hear. The passage right after this, he gives sight to a blind man. What's the message? Jesus will do the work to bring us a saving faith. We have the faculties. We can see. We can read. We can understand. But the ability to use them in a saving way requires the grace that he miraculously gives That's what he's showing here. The implication is that we rely on his guidance, his grace, and his power. Well, for his last bang on the counter, Jesus asks them if they remember what they've seen. Verse 18, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they did remember. They said 12. And so he says, and the, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They answered correctly, seven. And here's how the passage ends. He said to them, do you not understand yet? See, the implication of his queries, but they, should, they shouldn't be distressed that they only have one loaf. They have Jesus. There's a message for us as well. Why are we distressed Why are we doubting when we have Jesus as our Savior? He has the ability to provide by the resources of heaven. Well, so many of us deserve to be in that boat. We belong there in our unbelief. And here's the question. Are we growing in faith? That's what Jesus is doing. He's patiently nurturing the faith of his disciples. He patiently nurtures ours. So are we growing in faith? 
Are we connecting the dots between what we read in the Bible and the actual challenges of our life? Do we connect the dots between God's past faithfulness and our present need, or, or do we act when, when anxiety strikes us as, as if we never have no idea from where salvation will come? Do we positively, are we able to experience peace in the midst of the storms of life? Are we overwhelmed by anxiety and worry about the future, even though our lives are in God's hands? Well, since we so often, like the disciples, are so dull in our faith, and Jesus' warning about the leaven of unbelief applies to us. It reminds us we're to guard our faith, we're to feed our faith, we're to be in our Bibles, we're to be at church, we're to avoid the leaven of unbelief. Now, there is one positive thing we can say about the disciples, and it should be said of us that they were in the boat with Jesus. You see, that, that's what makes a difference. They belonged to Jesus. They, they were his, and they were in the boat with him. Uh, for the Pharisees, with their hard-hearted rejection of Jesus, the end of their opportunity for salvation had come. But the, why is there hope for the disciples? Because they're in the boat with Jesus. They're still with the Lord. And that boat is moving forward. And if, we know the, if we've read it before, we know where it's going. It's going to the harbor of eternal life. Because Jesus is going to nurture their faith unto salvation. And so it is for us when we are overwhelmed with fears and anxieties or doubts, let us draw near to Jesus. Open your Bible when you have concerns. Be sure to attend to sound preaching in the church. Read solid Christian literature. Open your heart in prayer. If you have concerns, talk to Jesus about them. Go to the Heavenly Father in Jesus' name. It's, it's, it's Jesus and his presence in his life through his ordinary means of grace that provides us the answers. Well, let me conclude with the thought that's on my mind. It's the words of the, the writer of Hebrews, who in Hebrews 2.12, he refers to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Some versions, it's the author and the finisher of our faith. And isn't that what we see with these disciples on the boat? Why were they with Jesus? Because he called them. He was the author of their faith. Their faith came from him, and we see that he will finish their faith. And the same is true for us, that he who began a good work in us, that good work was the, with believing in him, was the call of his grace and the opening of our hearts through his word, that we believe in him and he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. As we watch the disciples in the boat going forward with Jesus, we know where he's leading them. He's leading them to salvation. Likewise, we can be sure, trusting in Jesus, that our patient, sovereign, almighty redeemer, he will bring our faith to its perfection in Hebrew's language, to its completion. Having nothing in themselves, the disciples, the disciples possessed Jesus. He was their only resource for salvation, and that was more than enough. And if we will hear his call, if we will believe, if we will belong to Jesus, we too will find that he is all that we ever need. All that he gives is what ensures us of eternal life. Let me conclude with this statement. Jesus alone is sufficient not only to complete our salvation, but also like the 4,000 to whom he gave bread, he is sufficient to leave us satisfied and full.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this interesting episode. Father, help us to place ourselves in the episode. And Father, if we look at this chapter and we say, I'm with the Pharisees, then Father, right now grant the spirit of repentance. Right now, turn, turn the hearts that are hardened, lest they would be lost forever. But Father, if we find ourselves with the disciples and we, we, we are foolish, every time something happens, we panic. We, 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 we only have one loaf and we forget what Jesus can do. Father, bear with us. Strengthen us by your grace. Keep us near Jesus and cause your word to give us that growing faith that will bear the harvest of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.